Now, you may remember from last week that the sermon passage last week consisted of Paul's greeting, his salutation to the Colossian church. Now, we didn't really get into the the reason or the occasion for Paul's letter to the Colossian church last week, but if you look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 8, you'll see that Paul alludes to the fact that false teachers were trying to lead the Colossian church astray. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 8 say this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to... To Christ. As Mark Johnston points out in his study of the letter to the Colossians, most of the letters Paul wrote are in response to some kind of problem that had arisen in the church. And of those, the majority of the time, the problem was false teaching. But think about it. Just roll through your, your, in your mind the letters that Paul sent out. How many of them had to deal with false teaching, error that was coming into the church, false teachers who were wanting to gain access to the church, who were wanting to gain, as it were, access to the pulpits of the church for the purpose of leading Christ's sheep astray. And so with the Colossians, it's no different. But the same could be said in our day as well. It's one of the reasons that Paul's letters remain so relevant for the church today. 2,000 years later, we are still facing some of the same problems that the early church faced. False teaching, in some ways, has even greater access into the church because every one of us can easily come across false teaching by the phones that we hold in our hands. So Paul is concerned about the saints in Colossae. And he wants to warn them not to be taken captive by false teaching. But that isn't what he chooses to lead with. That's his concern. That's the the thing that has prompted this letter to be sent to the Colossian church. But he doesn't lead with that. Not out of the gate does does he run at them and say, Beware the false teachers. Don't be taken captive. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He chooses to express his thanksgiving to God for the Colossian church. And so this, the passage, the part of this letter that we're in today is the Thanksgiving section. We'll be in this part of the letter again next week as well. These Thanksgiving sections are common features of Paul's letters. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 1 verse 4, I give thanks to, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now you know that the Corinthian church had major issues. And setting the Galatian church aside for a moment, Paul wrote some of his sternest words to the Corinthians. But he was still able, sincerely, to thank God for them and for the grace that God had given to them. And so in our passage, in a church that's dealing with far lesser issues than the Galatian church, than the Corinthian church. Paul thanks God for the Colossians' faith, for their hope, and for their love. And that leads us to the thought that I would ask you to to consider, to contemplate as we work our way through the passage today. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the sure hope of everlasting life, which causes us to love all the saints. Let me say that again. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the sure hope of everlasting life, which causes us to love all the saints. I gave uh, 
the, the Miter family, we interviewed them yesterday. They, they, they're, they're becoming members of, of Mid-Cities, praise the Lord. And I gave them a heads up, that at least some of them, there's so many of them, I gave them a, a heads up. That we're going we're gonna to actually have a four-point sermon today. And we do. We've got a four-pointer. So just to, don't let that jar you too much. Uh, the first point of the sermon is always thankful. The second point, reports of faith. The third, an imperishable hope. And the fourth, the fruit of love. Again, the first point, always thankful. The second, reports of faith. The third, an imperishable hope. And the fourth, the fruit of love. So let's look at this first point of the sermon, always thankful. Now we've already seen that a thanksgiving section is a regular feature of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And we can trust that despite the problems that Paul often has to confront through his letters to various churches, he's genuinely thankful for the saints to whom he writes. He is thankful for the Galatians to whom he writes, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you now turning to another gospel? But he expresses his thankfulness to God for the Galatian church. He's thankful for the Colossian church as well. But more than that, he's thankful to God for causing these saints in Colossia to be saints. Just a reminder of part of what Sinclair Ferguson said about Paul's use of the word saints that we heard in fuller form last week. He wrote in part, all Christians have had their old life cut off, the root meaning of Paul's word saint, and are now distanced or set apart from their former lifestyle. To be a saint means that you are sanctified. You can hear the similarity between those two words, saint, sanctified. They're connected. They have a a similar root word. You are already, right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are already set apart from the world. But at the same time, you are continuing in, you are progressing in, you are growing in your set-apartness. So being a saint is both definitive and progressive. You, like the Colossians, are already saints, cut off from the reigning power, the dominion of sin. But that doesn't mean that you have achieved sinless perfection. And you will never achieve that in this life. Sad to say. I think we all wish that we could. But you will grow in your sanctification. You won't ever arrive at full sanctification in this life. But you'll grow in it. And yet, you're a saint. You don't have to wait to be canonized at some point uh, in the future. And so Paul is thankful... For these saints, he is thankful that they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. He is, as he says, always thankful for them. And we ought to mention that when he says we uh, two times in verse 3, he's probably acknowledging the fact that Timothy, who is with him, is involved in those prayers of thanksgiving. But Paul is primarily referring to himself. Paul, Paul knows his mind. He knows the gratitude, the thankfulness that he has to God for these Colossian Christians. Now, many of you are likely aware that the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps is Semper Fidelis, always faithful. And the import of this motto, it is is drilled in, it is driven into the brains of recruits when they're at basic training. 
Now, all branches of the military, they're big on esprit de corps, uh, this spirit of devotion to the members of a group, the, the band of brothers who, who will fight for one another uh, more fiercely than they'll fight for uh, the, the, the military organization, more fiercely than they'll fight for the nation. They'll fight for one another. That's esprit de corps. But in my totally unbiased opinion, the Marines are the most dedicated to building that esprit de corps. They're committed to it. The Marines have typically been the smallest branch of service. They're always often talked about, you're just a department of the Navy, a branch, you know, just a part of the Navy. And, yeah, we're the men's department of the Navy, but, you know. Uh, but, but the Marines have, throughout its history has always just about been cut off, always shut down, always closed up. And so we, 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 we have this desire to build this esprit de corps. And long after the Marines are out of uh, the core. We'll still greet one another with Semper Fives. Recently, we were down in San Antonio. There's a, uh, a master gunnery sergeant uh, with the Marine Corps band. And my first words to him when I walked in was Semper Fi. And that's sort of how when we recognize one another, we know we're talking to another Marine, we, we do that. We, 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 we say this when we're talking to one another. The Marines want their service members to be always faithful to their country, to the Corps, and to one another. Well, in a somewhat similar way to this, gratitude of thankfulness has been drilled into Paul's head, most likely by his senior drill instructor. On the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ. You probably never heard Jesus called a, a senior drill instructor. But he gave Paul private instruction. We know that, don't we? Jesus gave Paul words. Jesus gave him the words of the institution. We'll hear a little later from 1 Corinthians 11. He taught Paul. He instructed Paul. He, he gave Paul direct revelation from himself. And specifically, Paul always thanks God whenever he prays for the Colossian church because they have come to understand the grace of God in truth, as he says in verse 6, which is the continuation of that thought. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. You have to hold off till we get to the continuation of the thought. But it's there. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on Galatians, he writes, Paul's continual thanksgiving emerges because he is recalling in prayer how the believers have experienced the grace of God. Paul was a man of prayer. He prayed regularly. He prayed consistently. And he was thankful. He was thankful for the grace of God that, that was being experienced by the people at Colossae. Paul says this to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 16 of that letter. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Beale concludes his section on verse 3 of our passage saying this. Thus the idea is not that Paul prays every second of the day, but that he does so regularly, as he would have been used to doing as a Jew. To the extent that Christians have a continual mindset of prayer, they will have a thankful mindset. Spiritual impoverishment comes when believers do not prayerfully contemplate the experience of God's grace in their lives, and such impoverishment results in an unthankful perspective. Let me say that again. Spiritual impoverishment comes when believers do not prayerfully contemplate the experience of God's grace in their lives, and such impoverishment results in, a, in an unthankful perspective. Not only does, does Paul contemplate in prayer, his own experience of God's grace, he contemplates in prayer the Galatians and the Colossians and the Corinthians and the Philippians' experience of God's grace. And it results for Paul in this thankfulness. 
for what God is doing. I think part of our problem, brothers and sisters, is that we have conditioned ourselves, or perhaps maybe we've been conditioned, it's probably a little bit of both, to be so unhappy and discontented that we stifled our ability to be thankful to God. But to illustrate this, allow me to to use as as an example a a recent essay written by a self-described professional feminist college professor. You probably never expected to hear those words from the pulpit in mid-cities. But she writes this, I had noticed in the 2010s that many people in the weird world, and weird here stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, especially academic feminists and journalists, seem to be in a race to prove how miserable it is to be a woman now. This, this academic, she had recognized this. She was a professional feminist. She was in the, the world of, of, of the feminists. And she looked around and she saw women just miserable. And it seemed to be a race to her to prove how miserable it must be to be a woman. And this author goes on to document how women in the past 50 to 60 years have seen so many advances, which as a feminist she celebrates, that it makes no sense today why girls and women are so unhappy. Now, setting aside whatever you wish to make of her feminist worldview, and if you read the article, undoubtedly, you'd find things that you would object to. Her essay does illustrate the paradox that greater and greater prosperity and success in a society is often accompanied by greater misery and unhappiness. And I think we're seeing that today in epidemic proportions. I think social media only magnifies the problem and makes it seem so much worse. However, for the Christian, following Paul's pattern of a regular, consistent prayer life that is marked by gratitude and thanksgiving for the grace of God, it will beget even more gratitude and thanksgiving. Gratitude and thanksgiving beget gratitude and thanksgiving, but you have to be deliberate about it. You have to remember God's grace, your own experience of it, rejoicing in your own experience of God's grace, but also your brothers and sisters' experience of God's grace. That will beget gratitude and thanksgiving. Well, that brings us now to the second part of the sermon, reports of faith. In the late 1990s, I heard of this first learned of this organization called SETI Institute, S-E-T-I, maybe some of you are familiar with it. SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Scientists like Carl Sagan uh, was a member. Jill Tarter, who, about whom the movie Contact with Jodie Foster was made, she helped to get this organization started. It was all dedicated to the, the search. There's got to be intelligent life out there. We're going to try to find them. Well, they're still searching. They're, they're confident that they're going to find life of some sort. A recent visit to their website revealed a, a beautiful high-res video of Saturn and its rings, followed by various types of telescopes and satellite dishes, all overlaid with the provocative question, where will you be when we find life beyond Earth? And further down on the website is this statement, we are getting closer to discovering life on other worlds. SETI, Search for extra te- Extraterrestrial Intelligence, It seems like instead of now searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, they've lowered the bar and are now just searching for any kind of extraterrestrial life, not intelligent necessarily. And so you might say they've settled, likely because there's a higher statistical probability that they'll discover a single-celled organism than an alien advanced civilization. 
But imagine what it would be like if the scientists at SETI did discover what they call a technosignature, or more definitively, a radio signal with a message from another galaxy. How excited, how amazed they would be. How, how justified and vindicated they would feel. Okay, that's an extreme example. Now think about Paul. Think about when he receives this report about this church that perhaps he didn't even know anything about. It wasn't a church that he planted. Now, the situation in which Paul found himself, it was far more likely, given the relatively close proximity of Colossae to other churches in Asia Minor, given the fact that Paul is prolific in his missionary endeavors, his missionary work, it's far more likely that he would find out about a church that had sort of spontaneously come about out of nothing than than that scientists today will find intelligent life. Not to say that it can't happen. We're still looking for intelligent life here on Earth. I'm not sure that it's going to happen uh, in somewhere else in the universe. But Paul was probably no less excited than the scientists at SETI would be when he heard about the church at Colossae that seemingly sprang up out of nothing, ex nihilo. He was delighted, I think. And that's part of the reason that he says he thanks God when he prays for them, since he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul says later on in verse 7 that they heard the gospel from Paul's fellow minister, Epaphras, who then told Paul about them. Now, we touched on this a little bit last week, but when you meet people from different churches, when you meet believers, perhaps from a different country, and they speak of their faith, and you recognize that the faith that they have is the same faith that you have. Now, maybe you've got a little bit of variation. Some may you might be a four-point Calvinist. Others might not necessarily hold to the doctrines of grace, but they believe in salvation by Jesus Christ alone, in His name alone. And you recognize that the faith that they have is the faith that you have. It's a glorious, it's a wonderful thing. It's encouraging, it's very Deeply exciting. It's a reminder that it's God who's at work. It's a reminder that it's God who calls sinners to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance for their sins. He doesn't need any particular person to do this work. He raises up whomever he wishes to serve as heralds of the gospel. And yes, so God used Paul in powerful and amazing ways, but he chose to use someone else, Epaphras, to preach the gospel and plant the church at Colossae. But ever since Paul heard of these believers at Colossae, ever since he heard of their faith in Jesus Christ, he's been lifting up prayers of thanksgiving to God. He is deeply encouraged to be given a report of the faith of this heretofore unknown group of believers. He regards their faith that's been reported to him as genuine, which is why he so freely refers to them as saints. Unhinderedly, he refers to them as saints. Without equivocation, he refers to them as saints. He's not crossing his fingers behind his back when he refers to them as saints. He trusts that they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusts, as Peter put it in 1 Peter 1.8, that though they have not seen Jesus, they love him. Though they do not now see him, they believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so he extends, as it were, the right hand of Christian fellowship with these believers. He treats them as true brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what enables him, this deep love for them, this trust that they, that they too believe the true Christian faith, that's what enables him later on in the letter to give them warnings. He feels that, that freedom to do so because they are like him. He is like they. That brings us to the third 
section of the sermon, and imperishable hope. We're going to skip down to verse 5 for a moment. Skip over verse 4 just briefly. Paul writes there in verse 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now this is reminiscent of what Peter writes in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, Paul, of course, doesn't use the word imperishable in Colossians 1. That that, that really is a a Peter, that's a Petrine vocabulary word related to this inheritance. But, But it's certainly implied in what Paul says, simply by virtue of the fact that it is that this hope is laid up for us in heaven. If it's in heaven, it can't be taken from us. It can't be stolen. It can't be lost. But Paul isn't referring to a feeling of hope here, as if he's talking about the Christian's attitude of hopefulness. Instead, as G.K. Beale says, he's speaking of the object of our hope, that which is laid up in heaven for us. What is the hope that he's talking about. What is this object of our hope? Well, Beale takes it further. He's very helpful. I encourage you to get his commentary on Colossians. He takes it further. He says, Thus, though hope refers to the object of hope, it is implied that the reader's hope resides in their future glorious resurrection. Your hope as a believer resides in the fact that you will be raised again bodily. You hit a certain age. And I know some of you young folks, you can't quite understand this yet. Although you understand, you know what it, likes to, what it feels like to be banged up, bruised, scraped, bloodied. But you hit a certain age. For me, it was about 40. It's all been downhill, downhill since then. But you, you wake up in the morning with aches and, and pains. You, you find yourself more susceptible to illness in certain ways. You, you hurt and you don't know why. And, and, and I'm saying this and some of you who are older than me are going, yeah, you don't know anything yet, buddy. <laughs> and and I, I appreciate that. It's far more than that, but it, that's part of this hope that we have, that we don't have to live in a body that's broken down, that's susceptible to, to illness, to disease, a mind that gives in to temptation. We look forward to it. We long for that day when we, like the Lord Jesus Christ, have, have resurrected, glorified bodies. That's the hope that Paul is talking about here. It's so our, our hope in our future glorious resurrection is in, inextricably linked to our union with Christ by which we are already participating in resurrected life, resurrection life. If you are united with Christ by faith you have been raised you've been raised if you believe in Jesus Christ thus united to him you are already raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 and knowing this knowing that you have that hope that's set aside for you in heaven it should give you hopefulness now, how many of you right now, you feel, you feel hopeless, some, at least somewhat hopeless? I, mean, I think perhaps even our youngest children may feel this way. They may be the only ones who don't in this room. You feel a little bit hopeless. 
Remember the hope that is being kept for you in heaven. Remember the inheritance that you have, that God has promised to you. Remember that you already have been raised with Christ, that you are already partaking of this inheritance in a a certain way, not not a full way. Not in the way that you will when Jesus returns, when our, our bodies are resurrected from the dead, when they're glorified, when they're perfected. But Paul will say later on in, in Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You have been raised with him. And he says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, continuing that thought, If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is why Beale can rightly argue, in my estimation, that the hope laid up for us in heaven is our own future glorious resurrection. He's he's going there to to chapter 2. He's going there to chapter 3. Set your minds on the things that are above. Those things that are being kept for you. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 21. Do, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <coughs> Part of laying up our treasures in heaven is realizing that treasures already await us there. That hope, that treasure that is in heaven, it's the same for every Christian. That's the great equalizer. That's true equality. Though there certainly is disparity and inequality here on earth, we can't deny it. That will not be the case in heaven. We all have the same inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled waiting for us there. So when you're feeling low, when you're feeling hopeless, when you're feeling despondent, set your minds on the things that are above. Remember the hope laid up for you in heaven that cannot be taken away from you. Remember that despite your at least sometimes broken down body, which is prone to all kinds of infirmity and pain, despite your sin-addled mind and your often frail emotional state, you have waiting for you a future glorified body and a sin-free mind. It's there. It's as good as yours. You are already enjoying it to an extent. That's the already of the already not yet construct. And then... When you're contemplating all of these things that await you in heaven, remind yourself that you are in Christ and you already have been raised with him. You're no longer under the dominion of sin. You're no longer sin's slave. You have been set free from your bondage to sin. You are able by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you to love and obey God. You are able now not to sin, even though you still remain able to sin. And that brings us to the fourth and the final point of the sermon this morning, the fruit of love. Now, I've saved this section on love for the end, despite the fact that in the verses it precedes Paul's reference to the hope laid up for us in heaven. And I've done that in part because it fits with what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. But I've also saved it for the end because at the beginning of verse 5, 
we, we have something there that's significant. Let's take a look at that, verses 4 and 5. We read there, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The Colossian Christians' love for all the saints has come about because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. That's the argument that Paul's making here. James asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In chapter 4, verse 1 of his letter. And then he gives the answer in the following verses. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I know that even in this small church, we, we have varying uh, uh, representations of socioeconomic levels here. But, but by and large, if you were to take us and compare us to other groups, we would be uh, similar. And at our level on the socioeconomic ladder, there's always somebody who's more prosperous than we are, right? And there are a lot of people who are more prosperous in this nation than, than we are. But think about the, the richest person in the world. I'm not even sure who it is anymore. It seems like so many have lost just massive amounts of, of wealth. It's probably wealth largely on paper in one sense or another. But even the richest person on earth has to have the thought in the back of his mind that someone back there is about to take his spot at the top. Someone, I guess, down there is about to come up and dethrone him from his spot. There's always something that other people have that we want, but we aren't able to have. In other words, life isn't fair. It is true that all people are created equal. We believe that. It's not written in the Bible, of course. It's in the Declaration of Independence. But we hold these truths to be self-evident, don't we? That all people are created equal. But we don't all have identical abilities or interests. We aren't all equally intelligent or good-looking. As much as I would love to be one of those runners who could go on running for hours and hours, I never have been and won't ever be in this life a good runner. I look back on my time in the Marines and wonder how I made it through because I was such a bad runner. I've never been particularly good at mathematics. I can't play any instruments. I'm not good at telling jokes. Trust me. But other people are good at those things, and for many, their abilities, their greater abilities, have brought them great success. Now, I could be very envious of other people's abilities. I could be very envious of their achievements if I let myself, and sometimes I do. Unfortunately, I think our society conditions us to be envious of and angry at other people because they have gotten more stuff than we have. They've gotten more money in their accounts than we have. They've got nicer cars than we have. But focusing less and less on the success and prosperities of others in comparison to my own relative lack, and instead focusing more and more on the hope that is laid up for me in heaven, will help me to love my fellow saints rather than be envious of them. If I remember that my inheritance in heaven makes me the equal to the wealthiest man here on earth, makes me the equal to the wealthiest saint here in this church or any other church, I will be less prone to envy, less likely to covet, less needful of the praises of other people, more likely to congratulate other people on their successes. Because I know that when we get to heaven, all of that stuff doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. It doesn't last. 
It's temporary. What is eternal is what's laid up for me, what's laid up for you. And that is the same, brothers and sisters. We're equal. So sure, we're not necessarily equal in this life in terms of all of the outcomes, the ventures that we go on. But we are equal in the sight of God. Envy and covetousness, these things lead to quarrels and fights. Look at the conflicts we're having in our own country right now. How much of that is due to covetousness and envy? I suspect much of it is, frankly. Thinking again of the professional feminist I mentioned earlier, if we are taught and if we come to believe based on that teaching that we are far worse off than we have ever been, Despite all of the evidence that points in the opposite direction, we won't be thankful, we won't have hope, we'll be hindered in our love for one another. But remembering the hope that you have laid up for you in heaven, it will help you. It will encourage you to love all the saints, to love one another. You don't have to be the smartest person or the best best looking person in the room to love other people. You don't have to have a master's degree in theology to love other people. You don't have to be a seasoned saint to love other people. You just have to be a saint yourself. And if by being a saint, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have love for one another, it's because you have treasure laid up for you in heaven. One day the faith will become sight. The cloud will be rolled back as a scroll. One day you will fully receive the hope laid up for you in heaven. You will fully realize it one day. But love, the thing, the very thing that you could be doing right now, love will always abide. It will always remain. Right now you believe in what you don't see. You hope in what you don't fully have But you are fully able to love others right now. Right now. And it was in part the Colossian Christians' love for all the saints that confirmed for Paul the genuineness of their faith in Jesus Christ. As he said in 1 Corinthians 13 too, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I think what Paul was saying there is my faith isn't true if I don't have love. Love for all the saints, not just your favorite ones. It's a mark of true faith in Jesus Christ. It is a fruit of true faith, just as it is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love for the saints is an indicator. It's evidence of your faith in Christ because He teaches you through His Spirit to love the ones He loves. Even those who are somewhat unlovable. In Christ's church, you are all thrown together with all kinds of people of various ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, differing social economic, social economic levels, differing education. And our tendency, according to our sin natures, is to be with people who are like us. But what does that say? Well, the church doesn't, or at least it shouldn't do that. If we only love people who are like us, what it really means is we kind of only love ourselves. We can love people who are kind of the image of who we are. But God calls us to love to serve all the saints. He calls us to love our neighbors. He calls us to love our enemies. He calls us to do all of this. And of course to love him first and foremost. 
with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because he first loved us. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.